It's really good to be with you this morning. It's good to be able to share God's word with you. Um, I actually haven't preached since last year, Christmas Day. Uh, so I, I, I hope I can still remember how to do so. <laughs> Somebody asked me which book of the Bible we're going to be studying this year. And the short answer to that is I don't know yet. <laughs> Watch this space. Uh, there are a couple of passages and themes, though, that I'd like us to look at in the beginning of the year, just based on some of my reading and thinking and praying uh, that came out of our staff retreat, um, as well as some of the thinking and praying that will take place during our week of prayer as well. So we'll have to wait and see what God leads us to. For now, though, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And in particular, we're going to have a look at Psalm 62. The book of Psalms is a, is a very unique book because although it's part of the scriptures and therefore God's word to mankind, it is also in a very real sense mankind's words to God as men and women come before God and in song and in prayer pour out their hearts to him. And the Psalms are really examples to us of how we can address God in prayer. They're model prayers for us. And so if you want to grow in prayer, if you want to learn how to pray, then reading through the Psalms is an excellent way to do that. During the Middle Ages, the Benedictine monks used to chant all 150 psalms during the course of a week. So once a week, they prayed their way through the entire book of psalms. And so, in fact, the monks and the nuns ended up memorizing the entire book of psalms. Now, you don't have to be quite as extreme as that, but I would encourage you to make the psalms part of your daily Bible reading so that you can learn how to pray. I'm not sure what you're doing for Bible reading this year. Maybe you've bought yourself some Scripture Union notes, which is an excellent way of reading through God's Word systematically with some helps and some reflective questions. For myself, I normally have three bookmarks in my Bible. I've got one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, and then one in the book of Psalms. And that way, if I hit one of those dreadful genealogies in the Old Testament, at least I get something out of the New Testament and vice versa. But I'm also reading the Psalms, seeing how people addressed God in prayer. Well, let's have a look at this particular Psalm, uh, Psalm 62. And I'm going to read a combination of the older NIV, which brings out the important Hebrew word alone, which occurs several times in this Psalm but also the newer NIV, which brings out the fact that the psalm is not only for men. So Psalm 62 from verse 1. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down, this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O oh my soul, in God alone. 
My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what they have done. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, more and more, we do want to trust you more and more. We want to open up our lives to you. We want to experience you for ourselves and for our classic congregation. And we recognize that that's not something that we can do, but it's something that you do through your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you who inspired these words all of those thousands of years ago in the life of your servant would come and bring them alive in our hearts, that you would work in us what is pleasing to you, that you would cause us to will and to act according to your good purpose. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a book by the Nigerian author Chinawa Achebe called Things Fall Apart. Um, I've yet to read the book. I'm, I'm wanting it's on my list. But it describes pre-colonial life in Nigeria and the invasion of the country by the Europeans. But I, I just love the title, Things Fall Apart, because it describes the reality of the world in which we live. Things do indeed fall apart. In fact, we're experiencing that in, to a certain extent in our country right now. Power grids fall apart. If you were a believer in the Ukraine this morning, you would experience this to a far greater degree. For some, their entire world has fallen apart, literally overnight. Maybe that phrase is more personal to you this morning. Maybe there are folk here this morning who are experiencing this to a greater or lesser degree. Maybe there's a relationship that has fallen apart, a job that has fallen apart, a retirement plan or an investment that has fallen apart. Uh, perhaps you have a body that is falling apart. Things fall apart. What, and what do we do in those times? Well, I, I think that this psalm has a couple of answers for us. As in many of the psalms, this, this prayer comes out of a time of difficulty, although we're not told exactly the details of this time of difficulty. It's quite interesting, though, to see that while this man is in trouble, he doesn't actually ask God for anything in this psalm. There are no requests in this prayer. 
That doesn't mean that we can never ask things from God. There are many other prayers in the Bible that show us clearly that we can. But in this time of trouble, this man makes uh, no requests of God. Instead, he makes a settled commitment to trust God alone in his circumstances. Verse 1, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. The psalmist begins then with this assertion of trust. But of course this assertion is also being tested at the moment, particularly because of his enemies. Uh, the theme of enemies is one that often crops up in these various psalms. Uh, but have a look at the way that this man's enemies are described in verses 3 and 4. He says, how long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Their very lives are a lie. On the outside, they look so good and inviting, but inwardly, they're full of, of lies and cursing. I wonder if you have any enemies. As a pastor, of course, I, I don't have any enemies. There, there, there is no one in my life that I find irritable or unpleasant. And no one who finds me irritating or unpleasant either. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad that you're laughing. <laughs> We all have enemies, people who make our lives difficult, sometimes inadvertently and sometimes vertently, people who make our lives unpleasant. In extreme cases, we may literally have enemies who are out to take us down, maybe even to kill us. And how many of us don't wish that God would simply get rid of our enemies for us? If only those difficult people would move out of the neighborhood or be transferred or leave the church or even die. But what did Jesus have to say about enemies? In Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? I've been reading a very challenging book by Peter Scazzero called The Emotionally Healthy Disciple. In fact, it's so challenging, I'm considering stopping reading it. But I've discovered some very bad news about enemies. Enemies act as a litmus test for how much we love God. You see, I only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Our love for God is measured not by how much church we attend or how many Bible studies we go to or how much Bible reading and prayer we do. Our love for God is tested in how much we love others and in particular those who are unloving to us. If I'm not becoming a more loving person year by year, there is something seriously wrong with my relationship with Jesus. As the Apostle John puts it, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. Enemies are, are not pleasant to have around, but perhaps it would help, be helpful for us to recognize the gift that enemies are to us. 
You see, our Christian spirituality isn't only worked out in silence and solitude and the beauty of creation. Our spirituality is worked out in the difficulties and the hardships and the pain because in those times we have to lean on God and lean into God to help us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. How do we learn things like patience and kindness and goodness and forgiveness? It's not on a beach watching a beautiful sunset, but rather in the difficulties and the trials and the temptations where we experience God's power and loving kindness, even in our weaknesses. So Paul Scazzaro says, For Jesus, enemies were not interruptions to the spiritual life, but often the very means by which we might experience deeper communion with God. Enemies were not interruptions to the spiritual life, but often the very means by which we might experience deeper communion with God. And we see that in the psalm. The very struggle this man has with his enemies causes him to lean on God and trust in him more fully. Well, all of that was a sort of overall background uh, to some of the themes of the psalm. But let me give you a couple of official-looking points, because I always like a sermon to have some structure. What, what do we do when, fall, when things fall apart? What does trusting God in the midst of difficulties look like? Well, firstly, I think that this psalm tells us what trust is not. Before we learn what trust is, the psalmist tells us what trust is not. There are some don'ts and do's for trusting God, if you like. When things fall apart, we're presented with a number of other options, other activities, other choices, rather than trusting in God. And the psalmist mentions three of these. Firstly, there is the option of relying on people. And trust is not relying on people. Verse 9, the psalmist says, Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. The psalmist says then that all people, whether those we consider to be lower than us or those we consider to be higher than us, are just a breath, here for a while, and then gone. I don't believe the psalm is suggesting that we never seek help from our brothers or sisters, that we don't consult a doctor or a lawyer or a psychologist or a financial advisor. Rather, the psalmist is warning us against the subtle ways in which we try to get things from people, the ways in which we value people because of what we think we might be able to get out of them, the subtle ways in which we manipulate and use other people, again, particularly those who are richer or more powerful than us, in order to get what we want. Sometimes we view people and we value people based on what we think we can get from them rather than what we can give to them in relationship. The Bible tells us that all people are like grass and the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord continues forever. One of the older Bible commentators says of this verse, the point of this verse is not so much that we have nothing to fear from man as that we have nothing to hope from him. We can't depend on people. 
Secondly, this psalm warns us against trying to make a plan for ourselves. When things fall apart, we often try and figure out how we can figure it out ourselves, to make a plan. But making a plan is not trusting God. I think that's the point of verse 10, where the psalmist says, do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. When we find ourselves in trouble, the temptation is always there for us to take the shortcut, to do something that might not necessarily end us in jail, but would be immoral, even illegal. And the psalmist warns us that getting good results never justifies the evil that we may use in order to get those results. And thirdly, the psalm warns us against trusting in our own wealth. That's the second part of verse 10. Trusting in wealth is not trusting God. He says, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Some of us have the privilege of being in a good financial position, of having a good retirement plan of having savings, of having insurance, of having medical aid. And it's so easy then for us to put our confidence and our hope in our wealth. We rely on our savings for protection and for provision instead of relying on God. One writer that I read this week said this, and I think he's got it spot on. He says, it is possible to hold great wealth without trusting in those riches. But it isn't easy. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure exactly how this works out practically in our own lives. And I suspect that this is an individual choice based on how God speaks personally to us. Uh, We had a friend in Kimberley who consciously didn't have insurance or a savings plan or even a full medical aid. He just had a hospital plan. And he he did that as an expression of his trust in God. I should also point out that he was also a hard-working Hollander who was frugal and careful and wise. He had his own honey business. He was involved in renovating houses and renting them out. And so by his careful, hard work, he ended up in a position where he didn't need those things in any case. But whether we choose to have insurance or if we have lots of money in the bank, we need to pay careful attention to what the psalmist says here, that if we have those things, we're not to set our hearts on them or to rely on them. And I guess one of the ways out of that then might be thankfulness, gratitude. You know, instead of when the the weekly or monthly salary comes into my account, just pausing and thanking God instead of taking it for granted. It would involve things like simplicity, not wanting everything that is new and shiny. And it would involve things like generosity. So thankfulness, simplicity, and generosity can help us not set our hearts on our wealth. This idea is something that Paul repeats in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Again, it's possible to hold great wealth without trusting in those riches, but it isn't easy. 
Well, if trusting in people or manipulatively making a plan for ourselves or relying on our wealth are ways in which we do not trust God, how then do we trust him? I suppose that there are many ways, but there are at least two that are revealed in this psalm. Firstly, there is learning about God. Why why does the psalmist trust God? Well, his trust is based on the character of God and what he understands about the character of God. If you have a look at verse 11, the psalmist says, One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O God, are loving. This is why reading the Bible is so important, because the character of God is revealed in the scriptures. You see, we we don't have the liberty to think of God in whatever way we want. The Bible tells us what God is like. Sometimes you hear people say, I like to think of God like, but you can't do that, not even with human relationships. You can't come up to me and say, Andrew, I like to think of you as a brilliant handyman with fantastic computer skills on the side, really athletic and muscular. Well, you might think of me in that way, but it's not the reality of of who I am. Or if you were to come up to me and say, you know, I met your daughter Karen yesterday. Well, she's a lovely girl. I, I love her blonde hair and her dimples, and I was so glad to hear that she got that job with the computer company. I'd have to say, I'm I'm sorry but you've got the wrong person. Karen is lovely, but she's got brown hair and no dimples, and she's studying teaching at Stellenbosch University. We understand God from who he really is, and who he really is is revealed to us, yes, in the world around us, but most importantly in Scripture. There is where God reveals himself. And we look into the Scriptures, and we see that God is for us, That God is not stingy. He's not a one false move God. Our God is, I love you no matter what. I'll take care of you. Seek me first and everything else is going to be taken care of. I've got you. We need to feed our souls on God's word. We don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We meditate on his character as revealed in the scriptures, and then our souls take rest in him. Just look at some of the other descriptions of God, even in this psalm. He is our rock. A few days ago, I was swimming in the sea, and for just a few seconds, I realized that I'd gone in deeper than I expected, and oh, the joy of having my feet touch the sand again. How much more safe and secure to find my feet upon solid rock. God is our fortress. Think of those huge medieval castles with the moat and the drawbridge and the turrets with an army inside ready to defend us. The psalmist speaks of God being his salvation. For the psalmist, that meant literal salvation from his trouble and his enemies. But the word salvation means so much more to those of us who live this side of the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been completely saved. We stand before God dressed in the righteousness of Jesus alone, and that gives us hope and confidence. 
So we learn to trust God by learning about him. But secondly, we learn to trust God by living out all of life before him. That, I think, is the point of verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. A couple of days ago, I was taking an early morning walk, and due to a particular situation, which I won't go into, I found myself getting angry with God. And seeing as I was out walking where it was lonely and quiet, I began to start expressing my anger towards God. And then I stopped and I said, I'm sorry, Lord, I shouldn't be angry. And then it hit me. I was denying a part of who I was before God. I was believing that it wasn't okay to be myself in front of God, that I had to suppress my anger and put on a happy face before God. And so I had to then be sorry for being sorry about being angry at God. (laughs) And I respectfully prayed, God, I am angry. And I'm so glad that we have a depth of relationship and intimacy that allows me to voice my anger to you. Help me, Lord, to cultivate a more intimate relationship with you where I can tell you exactly what is going on within me because you know about it anyway. We tend to think that our prayers have to be clean and godly and spiritual and include holy language. It reminds me of the story of the little boy who came home when his pastor was visiting his family. He didn't realize that the pastor was in the front room. He just saw his mom and dad sitting there. And so he came running into the front room holding a dead rat by the tail. And he said, Mom, Dad, look at this rat that I caught. It was behind the haystack in the barn. I threw rocks at it. I hit it with a baseball bat. I stomped on it. I kicked it. I, I. And then he looked up and saw the pastor. And so he cleared his throat and said, And then the dear Lord called it home. And we tend to do that with our prayers to God. We think they have to be sanctified and sanitized. But as I said at the beginning of the sermon, the Psalms are model prayers for us. And in the Psalms, we see how men and women said the most outrageous things to God. Psalm 44, for example. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Was God asleep? Was he hiding his face? No, but that's how the psalmist felt, and he expresses those feelings openly before God. If you think about it, honesty and openness are a sign of intimacy. You don't share with your boss what's going on in your marriage or tell the cashier exactly what kind of a week you've had. You save those things for your best friend or your marriage partner over a cup of coffee. Part of trusting God includes trusting God with what he knows already, the depths of my heart. God, in fact, speaks to us in our emotions and even through our emotions. Uh, To quote another writer again, when we are not in touch with what is going on inside us, We're not in reality, but in illusion or denial. And when we're not in reality, we're not in spirituality, because the authentic spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. We need to cultivate a living relationship with the living God, 
and live out all of our lives before him. There is, in fact, so much more that we could look at in this psalm. And, in fact, I'm going to give you some homework today. Um, On your way out, I'm going to send you a WhatsApp with some questions to look at later in the week. And I want to encourage you to get out Psalm 62 and get out some of those questions and think and meditate on the psalm for yourself. Um, Perhaps you might like to do this in a small group. Maybe your Bible study would like to do it. Um, Or maybe you could just go out for coffee with a friend. Maybe there's someone in the congregation you don't know very well and you might like to meet up for coffee with Psalm 62 and these questions. It would be a great way of getting to know other people as well. But besides that, uh, besides your homework, let's notice just one final thing in this psalm. Notice that this affirmation of trust is repeated twice in the psalm. So in verse 1, the psalm begins... My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And then a little later in verse 5, the psalmist repeats, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. This repetition then teaches us that it's possible to forget to trust God and that we need to be constantly reminding ourselves to trust in him alone. It's not a once-off decision. We have to keep on trusting God. One Bible commentator uh, had this to say, just this one line that really struck me. He said, They trust not God at all who trust him not alone. Notice also the personal nature of this trust. This is something that the psalmist has discovered for himself personally, even through difficulties. God is not simply a refuge and a fortress. The psalmist can say, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. He is my hope. And so the question for us today is simply this. Do we know the truths of this psalm personally for ourselves? Can we truly say, my soul finds rest in God alone? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, even in this new week that lies ahead, with its difficulties, with its trials, with its pains, with its sorrows, with its joys, with its delights, we ask that we would invite you into every area of our lives and that we would trust you alone. I pray for any this morning who might be going through a particular difficulty. I ask, Lord, that you would grant them wisdom and strength and insight to know how to trust you alone. There may very well be other things that they need to do. There may be other resources that they may need to rely on. But underneath all of those, won't you help us to have a deep and personal trust in you? And we thank you that we can trust in you because of the cross. We look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and say, you have earned the right for us to trust you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.